Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening and happy April 1st. Whoa, boy, can you believe we're out of winter. (laughs) Yeah, it did snow a couple days ago. But I am the producer of Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show celebrating 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Now, that dovetails WFHB's mission statement, which is, is that WFHB exists to provide an open forum for the exchange and discussion of ideas and issues and to celebrate and increase the local cultural diversity. And with that, during this hour, we'll also give you opportunities to support WFHB during its spring fund drive. I'll take a moment to explain why this is so important. We're volunteer-driven, volunteer-powered, and I've been doing this. I've been affiliated with uh, WFHB much longer than the 14 years of bringing on Uh, Right now, I just can't do the math. It was so long ago. I think we had crank phones, but nevertheless, I've enjoyed every year. Uh, Every time I come in the station, volunteers bustling and experts on the board, um, engineering and just producing quality show that uh, honestly, um, it's so rooted and tapped into the local community that it's rare that any other show in this city does that. And I'll stand by that. Uh, I'll tell you this right now, our, fun, our spring fund drive efforts have yielded a 30% um, uh, total as of day four, 30%. Now, the bulk of this was from a one uh, large donation, which uh, we will use to match funds. And, um, you know, we, we want to get to that goal. We need your help. And so many of you have already phoned in, and I've reached out to many of our listeners and supporters of Bring It On to do just that. And the goals for bringing on um, are numerous, and we'll go over those as we proceed through this show this hour. But I do want to just thank a couple of people who've already given. Uh, William Hosea, who is one of the voices here on Bringing On, donated earlier today. Robin Winston, uh, a, a guest who's been on this show numerous times, bringing his uh, intellect regarding the politics of our nation. John McCluskey and uh, others out there and and promissory commitments from a number of people and we'll talk about that as we progress through the show but we do also want to thank our sponsors for today our day sponsor is white rabbit and printing thank you so much for what you've done for the station and also thanks to runcible spoon i walked in the station today and it's smelling mighty good in here and it's runcible spoon they're feeding our volunteers, and uh, no, I did not grab a bite to eat before coming on the air. Uh, you didn't want to hear me smacking, but you do want to hear me talking about how great this station is. So it's easy to do. You could do so online safely, securely, or just pick up the phone and dial 812-323-1200. We have someone there by the phone waiting right now to take your pledge, 812-323-1200. Now, I'll be back during uh, this show, uh, during several breaks to talk a little bit more about why the, the time to give is now and why the need is is uh, fulfilled, best fulfilled by you. So we do ask that you don't touch that dial, but we have some exciting things coming up. 
Uh, we do want to thank those for, for giving. Uh, thank you for what you've done. Um, and But we also want to thank you for what you will do during this hour. And several, several of our Bringing On listeners, as I mentioned, and longtime supporters have given advance gifts to the WFHB Spring Fund Drive. And for your generosity, we thank you. Now for tonight's broadcast, we have back-to-back interviews with two phenomenal women associated with black films. First, we have Dr. Terry Francis, director of the IU Black Film Center Archives, followed by a conversation with Nina Lorez Collins, daughter of the accomplished author and filmmaker Kathleen Collins. Let's now begin that conversation. Welcome to Bring It On. This is Clarence Boone. I'm the producer of the show, and I hope you've been tuning in and listening and being inspired and enjoying every aspect of uh, what we offer on Monday nights from 6 to 7. As just mentioned, I have the extreme pleasure to uh, be seated next to Dr. Terry Francis, uh, who is the director of the Black Film Center Archive at Indiana University. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, we've been really talking before this conversation about just some of the angles we can go. There's so much going on. We're sort of dubbing this uh, part of the show the state of the black film. And uh, who else to bring us the, the, the assessment of the state of a black film than Dr. Terry Francis. Let's start off uh, with just an introduction of who you are, where you're from, and what exciting things you do. I'm Terry Francis, and I direct the Black Film Center Archive. In addition, I am an associate professor at Indiana University where I teach classes and I conduct research. I'm finishing up a book on Josephine Baker uh, called The Cinematic Prison of Josephine Baker. And I work on Caribbean film, um, in particular Jamaican film, and experimental films under the kind of framework of Afro-surrealism. That is a very broad description. Uh, what caught my ear most of all was uh, Josephine Baker, who mm-hmm. uh, was an individual who was sort of ahead of her time and living abroad mm-hmm. in Paris, if, if I'm correct, mm-hmm. and uh, touring the world upside down just with her provocatism, but yet with her talent for show, showmanship, if I will. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you tell us uh, what other um, uh, individuals of note that are featured at the Black Film Archive? Oh, wow. I, I want to say that um, if a person is of note, they're featured at the Black Film Center Archive. And then we also have um, people you might not know as well, those who have been overlooked by the um, you know the broader kind of Hollywood mainstream uh, film history. So one of our most important collections is the collection of Phil Moore. Phil Moore was, um, was a composer and a vocal coach, and he scored a number of films, sometimes uncredited, and we are fortunate enough to have his collections. And so for us, he's a star. Mm-hmm. For many, he is yet unknown. So the unknown and the, and the star and the historical figure really come together in our collections. Now, before we go too far, I mm-hmm. that was a two-part question I asked initially, and that is, who is Dr. Terry Francis? Oh, right. <laughs> and, uh, tell us who you are, where you're from. Um, oh, wow. Okay. The elementary school you went to. Not sure. Not so much the daycare center, but the no, no, just, just, just a, little <laughs> back, a little bit of background on who you are. Well, I went to Vaz Preparatory School in Jamaica. All right. <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And um, I um, and I grew up in Central Florida, and you know went to college there, and so forth, and. Um, and started moving out on my own um, as a graduate student at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first position was at Yale University. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, 2004. 
and I've been at Indiana University since 2014. You talk about a, a broad base of experiences, both educationally and, and just uh, uh, vocationally. That's pretty impressive. And, Thank you. and I will say that uh, uh, Yale and, and, and other prestigious institutions uh, probably just added to your toolkit, and now <laughs> you're ready to just unleash on us uh, all of this wonderful knowledge. And, and the, the exciting thing I like about any job is that if you're doing what you love to do, it's a joy and pleasure to come to work, and it's not a drudgery. Mm. And what were some of the most uh, uh, memorable moments thus far uh, during your tenure here at Indiana University? Oh, wow. I'm going to need a moment to suss through. Um, <laughs> memorable moments. It's, I feel like every time I start doing something, because I live in a number of different time zones, you know, okay. with the job. I'm thinking about the fall. I'm already thinking about the spring of mm -hmm. 2020. I'm looking forward to next week. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. <laughs> okay, okay. So there's kind of a lot, um, a lot going on, and that might be one of the things that I enjoy most about it. Um, I do have a broad range of interests in the movies and um, and the curatorial work that I'm doing at the BFCA lets me indulge and engage and um, and create conversations that otherwise I wouldn't get to have. Well, for those that have tuned in, we're talking to Dr. Terry Francis, who is the director of the Black Film Center Archive at Indiana University. A little background on the Black Film Center Archive was established in 1981 as a repository of films and related materials by and about African Americans. Included are films which have substantial participation by African Americans as writers, actors, producers, directors, musicians, and consultants, as well as those which depict some aspects of the black experience. Let me put a pin in that right now and just uh, ask you, you just had the recent Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. Were you pleased? I was delighted. Uh, with the sort of range of awards given to African-American talent? Yeah, I so I teach a class on Spike Lee. Um, I've been teaching it for several years, and so it was um, kind of a, a pleasure to see him win an Oscar um, and to see how excited he was about it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the speech, a kind of classic Spike Lee historical praise song griot moment going from 1619 to the present day. Um, very much, I mean, that's his, that's school days, that's do the right thing, that's Black Klansman, that's how he thinks. He's always, history is always right now. Um, it was wonderful to see Ruth Carter, you know, win the Oscar for her costume design work in Black Panther, mm -hmm. whose career is very much through the Spike Lee joint. You know, she um, costumes several of his films and um, the young production designer on Black Panther. I really like the range of that, that to see black filmmakers um, who are working in a variety of different crafts, not only the director and not only actors, but now it's like, oh, production design, that's a that's a job, that's a thing you can do. Costume design, that's a thing you can do. Do you know what I mean? I feel like those those types of awards have now, I think, a kind of visibility that can be quite important. I know uh, Butterfly, Butterfly McQueen, excuse me, Butterfly McQueen, mm -hmm. uh, Sidney Poitier, Halle Berry, and a few others of note, uh, Denzel Washington. Mm -hmm. um, Hattie McDaniel. Hattie McDaniel, and I recall if, uh, if I can get this right, Coming to America won an Oscar for Best Costume. Oh, is that right? I, was I did not know that. Costume. And, and here we were thinking, you know, we were all in the seats. Uh, you know, uh, we're going to hear either 
uh, Eddie Murphy is going to get this award for best actor or whatever, but for best costume. But I'm finding with the Oscars, you, you got to bide your time, and it is political. Mm-hmm. It is political. Mm-hmm. Spike Lee honestly should have received an award years earlier. Now he did receive some recognition from the Academy. He got an honorary award or a lifetime achievement award. I want to say last year, and wasn't didn't he win best screenplay? Um, At some he point, he may have. He may have, but but his recognition is long overdue. Oh, and I think that's right. A, mm-hmm. uh, an unusual. Uh, he thinks out of the box when he makes films. Sure. And when I saw the Clansman, the Black Clansman, the thing that got me was the sort of signature Spike Lee uh, sort of directorial uh, um, prop was the actors begin to kind of float. Mm-hmm. Along, and I, I'm thinking to myself, now that's a signature Spike Lee move. No, that's right, that dolly shot. That mm-hmm. dolly shot, they're just sliding along, and it's almost as if they're being propelled forward in their own mind, or he's about to give us some history or, or leave us with a uh, signature message. No, that's right, it's a lovely gesture. Sometimes when he uses it, it means that characters are um, disconnected from their environment, right. it can be an introspective moment. It's um, like in when Denzel Washington as Malcolm X has his kind of dolly shot moment. It's a kind of um, contemplative moment of realizing that this could could be the end. It's and um, and he's kind of uh, jolted back to reality with by um, a woman asking him, "Are you all right?" right. You know. Right. Um, so it's uh, it's a really rich move that kind of, and even I think for the audience, it takes you into the film as recognizing it as a, a movie. Um, and that's that wake-up mode that Spike Lee wants his viewers to be in. And you've had some very uh, contemporary themes. Uh, school Days is one, and then Clockers. Mm, that's a good one. Uh, People don't not, often refer to that one. Clockers was graphic. It was hard-hitting. But it, it, if, if you watched it, and it can get beyond just just uh, the uh, as it was coming off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was shock raw imagery mm. that once you got beyond it, you really caught the seriousness of the message that was about to follow. Yeah, I actually think of that film sometimes like a memorial or a funeral yeah. for those young men, um, a kind of a opportunity to view the body, to acknowledge their lives, their faces, and the reality of that violence, mm-hmm. you know, the brutality of it. Well, there are other uh, spy pleas do you feel that are up and coming? Well, I like to say that, you know, the, the Issa Rae will be the Issa Rae. You mm-hmm. know, the Numa Perrier will be the Numa Perrier and not a new Spike Lee. So, but I think that it is an exciting moment where there are lots of different filmmakers and media makers of different tastes and genres and stories who are on the scene where I think when I was growing up, Spike Lee was our director. Um, you know, was our black director. And I remember being aware as well of Maddie Rich um, and, and uh, eventually John Singleton. But Spike Lee was the more prominent one in my mind. And even as I started to teach as a professor, he occupies quite a large space in the just thinking about black film and students um, and enjoy him and are familiar with him, you know, in his fame, through his fame. Melvin Peoples? Oh, yeah. Melvin Van Peoples. Love him. Yeah. He's in his, must be in his 80s now. And he's still in the... Through Mario uh, directing now, but is Mario sort of the, the incarnate of Van Peoples? Or? Oh, I think they're pretty different okay. in their modes. I mean, they I know they collaborated a lot. Um, I'm trying to think of the title of their film that they did on the on black exploitation films. Um, so they, they worked together on that. Well, they worked together on Sweet Soup Back's Badass Song in a sense as well, um, to the sh- chagrin and 
a scandal of many people. And, um, but I, I think that they're, I feel like now their projects are probably quite divergent. And I, I w- couldn't really say what Mario Van Peebles is doing right now. I remember Under the Learning Tree uh, mm-hmm. years ago. And of course, founder and some others uh, with her signature with Jane Pittman. I mean, these movies mm-hmm. are not by, produced by these particular directors, but these right. movies have left an indelible mark on a lot of individuals as well as Alex Haley sure. uh, with, with Roots and others. And jumping in um, during um, a wonderful conversation with director Dr. Terry Francis. Uh, she is director of the IU Black Film Center Archive, a discussion about the state of black films in the country. And uh, she is a very noted researcher. One thing about the, the Black Film Center Archive is that this facility is where scholars, students, and researchers can view films and have access to auxiliary research facilities on the Indiana University Bloomington campus. And Bring It On is uh, produced at a a facility where excellent programming goes out, um, relevant programming goes out. And we have dedicated volunteers who spend long hours here crafting away at something that the listening public can glean from, learn from, and be benefited from in this community right here in Bloomington, Indiana. Now, one thing I will say, I'll, I'll boast about bringing on, we are uh, a numerous, uh, well, we numerous years, we've received awards from the Society of Professional Journalists. And as late as last year, we received a second place award for our broadcasting. And uh, we're always thrilled to go up there, and you, you meet a lot of media luminaries while you're there from some of the major networks uh, coming out of Indianapolis and, of course, all through the state. But to come back, to bring back to the station uh, first or second place honors is always uh, a thrilling moment. Again, we just want to give our thanks to some of our sponsors for this evening and for the day. We have a day sponsor, White Rabbit Printing. We want to thank them for what they've done today. And our thanks to Runcible Spoon for feeding our volunteers, uh, some of the hardest working people in Bloomington. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, we have 30% of, of our goal reached in only four days, but we don't want to rest on that because that came from one large donor. And we're going to use the bulk of those funds as an incentive, as incentive for others to give. So we want you to pick up that phone right now, 812-323-1200, and call. And as they used to say, smile and dial and make your pledge known to Bloomington, Bloomington's only community-based radio station, WFHB. And again, our shout-out to those who have been calling and donating. Um, During this hour, I anticipate more updates to provide you, but we do want to thank those that have given thus far and have given from the heart. Now is the time to pick up that phone, or you can give safely and securely online at www.wfhb.org and give safely and securely uh, online. So we thank you for tuning in thus far, and now let's let's head on back to this uh, engaging conversation. But before we do, this is Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. And to keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. 
Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB, or you can always visit the WFHB News website at WFHB.org news. Now let's turn our attention back to our conversation with Dr. Terry Francis, director of the IU Black Film Center Archive. So the state of the black film now. Yeah. You know, I, I enjoy watching, and I'll, I'll say, I've said this before, I enjoy watching Tenetizer movies. Oh. Uh, these are movies that to me define a plot. Yeah. And they don't necessarily have a formula. Uh, it can be riveting. It can be uh, suspenseful without the sort of formulaic model we have now where uh, actor meets actress, chemistry, so the next thing you know there's going to be this scene. <laughs> and then it can go either a couple of different ways, but they really take their time to develop a plot. And, you know, the, that, this, and then we've had during uh, February that longest month of the year. Is it the longest month of the year? I know it's, it's the, the most important. It's the warmest <laughs> month of the year, right? <laughs> Only if you live in Bloomington. But anyway, <laughs> Black History Month, they have this sort of salute mm-hmm. to black films. And then Cabin in the Sky, we watch that. And, and of course, I love watching that. And there's some others. But, and it, but yeah, then you see Holiday Inn. Uh, Ooh, tell which, me about that. Well, Holiday Inn, I think it starred, if I'm not mistaken, uh, not Spencer Tracy, but uh, it was uh, someone, it'll come to me, some well-known actor at the, at the time. Mm-hmm opened up uh, this sort of club and in the outskirts of New York, you know, this sort of off the beaten path, and mm. to go out there was this sort of exciting thing to do. Like a juke joint? I, well, it's not our version of a juke mm. joint. But, uh, you would hear, you know, music you may not hear in, in New York, but there were some couple of scenes that, again, always smack me in the face of mommy, okay, yeah, this is the time and place. They have a nanny scene, they have sort of the scene where the children are, are at best described as a pickaninny running around, and I'm thinking, what are we, and I'm in, okay. Okay, this is the time, this is the place. So, and then the Pullman Porter scenes always sort of get me. Mm-hmm. You have to mm-hmm. uh, remember that this is uh, a work of art that was um, created years before Grandfather's Man or whatever. But I do enjoy Turner Classic movies. I enjoy this salute to black film by Lena Horne and some others. I mean, we go on down mm-hmm. the list. But today, you know, we have someone that I want to talk about now uh, whose movie just opened last Friday. Uh, Jordan Peele, mm. second go around, I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's like, right. Get out. That's right. So now, not they, they mean get out for real now, because <laughs> it's us, right? And, and it was a film made entitled "Us" for really us, for yeah. one of those black horror movies. Yeah, it's intense. And what's your sense of that? I understood that uh, you've seen this already. And what's, your, what's your sense of? I that? did. I went and saw that last night in the night. So when it's over, I have to go out there in the dark. <laughs> into my car by myself you know um it's um it's a fascinating movie it's i i'm not somebody who normally watches horror films i don't like being scared Mm -hmm. but i do recognize and through get out recognize that um that i'm actually scared all the time it's probably how i organize um everything about where i decide to walk where i park who I talk to, how right, I dress. Right, Do you know right. what I mean? Just a um, just a, a normalized sense of um, of being in danger and needing to protect myself from terrible white people, um, terrible men. The combination, Lord forbid, of the two. You know what I mean? You're just always kind of um, aware of that your vulnerability. And um, get out. Uh, I mean, um, uh, and yeah. us kind of says to me, you know, those parts of us that are. Um, that we thought we were done with. Those parts of us that are either painful or have frightened us, have shaped us in that sort of jagged way that our experiences can shape us, um, that we think we're done with them, and then those experiences come 
two inches from your face and say, oh, we're not done. <laughs> we're not done at all. So Jason and Freddie on steroids. Yeah, but within black, you. Now they're black. Or now they're black and now they're you. Yeah. You know, they're wow. within you. The monster is um, is wow. actually within your own experience and within yourself and has your face. Mm. <laughs> they don't like that. It's scary. Well, I, when I when I think of that movie, um, and I have not seen the movie, and I'm mm. gonna lay off a whole. Oh no, not at all. You must go and you must be frightened if you wish to see it. Yes. Uh, it reminds me of another movie about five years ago where a family, a couple into a house, and there were people wearing animal masks who were terrorizing them. Mm. Sort of, and I'm not even I don't know how to compare because I haven't seen this. One. Right. But again, it's just the uh, the bump in the middle of the night. And, and growing up, uh, I did. I did at one time. I really was in a horror movie mm. uh, growing up, mm-hmm. and there was always this sort of formula in the horror movies where, if there was a black actor, yeah. you, would, you would hunch the person next to you and say, "Okay, how many nights do you think this?" Person right, around, that's right? right. Yeah. And so then there's a bump in the night. There's a crash in the next room, and everybody looks around and they kind of look at Jim, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Jim says, "Okay, I'll go." Right. And, and then Jim doesn't come back, you know. But it was that sort of. Um, for, for a few years, the formula in, in uh, movie making where, yeah, blacks got their role, but they didn't stay through the whole yeah. to the credits of things. So. There's a great new documentary about <laughs> blacks and horror films um, called Horror Noir. Okay. And um, and the scholars and actors and writers in the film kind of go over those exactly those types of um, tropes and how um, this how we're in this shift mm-hmm. where we're looking at sometimes we're looking at blackness itself as a kind of horror or race um, as a kind of um, situation where we're all in a, a horrifying existence you know something like that it's and so you know we have to be there because the story is about us it's a different place I, I really appreciate the director or producer or screenwriter or whoever who will not who maybe pushes back in writing the traditional expected type of movie mm-hmm. where they will explore things uh, that don't deal with race mm. and celebrate life. I mean, that may be rare, yeah. but I really appreciate that black uh, producer or director as a part of that project. Yeah. Well, you know, you might enjoy this article that um, Tambe Obenson has written in IndieWire about us where he says that um, that Jordan Peele's film is remarkable in that it's, you know, stars a black family and a dark-skinned black family at that mm-hmm. And yet it's not, it doesn't, it's not about um, blackness directly or race in that way. On the other hand, there's another article that I read that said that actually this is another awesome way of thinking about blackness, which is that it exists as a, as a natural part of who these characters are. And there are many different ways to engage with it. It doesn't always have to be through the lens of racial conflict, right? Because those two things are different. Like you can talk about black aesthetics and um um as we were saying with our you know with the repository with black film center archive um it's african-american history but it's also african history we have a huge collection of african posters and films um there's also you know afro-european and of course the caribbean Mm -hmm. so it's actually quite an international collection that kind of fits into that rubric of black that lets that can mean you know lots of different places and lots of different kinds of people but race is sometimes sometimes race sometimes mean uh, means that there are black characters in the movie. But race is actually a very specific kind of um, you know a, a very specific thing. Like race is the idea that there's something about your body that defines you as part of a group that's and makes you inherently different. 
Um, and, you know, racism is the hierarchy of that. And of course, just even the idea of race comes with hierarchy. It's not at all neutral. But then blackness can be all of these different things. It can be a resistance to that um, by valuing who we are, what we're about. Um, it can be done like in, in Jordan Peele's films of centering the black character where in Get Out, we are with Chris. We see all of this through his perspective. Um, and we, even though he's, I mean, he massacres that family. People are like, yes, we understand that. Even white people, which could be part of the robust narcissism of whiteness, uh, where it's like, oh, this film isn't about us. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, because um, I'm always kind of wondering, why do people like this film so much? I would think they'd resist it. But I think there's a quite an important um, progressive movement, I think, among um, you know people who have been raised to be white, who really want to, who are critical of that and who you know want something better. You know, maybe because I, I really hadn't looked at the trailer too much, but everybody was abuzz about this movie called mm. Us, and it yeah. didn't go into too much detail. Uh -huh. so I thought, oh, is this a spinoff from the uh, the drama on TV? This is Us, but, but obviously not. <laughs> yeah. Interesting though the title. But, yeah. but, but does the uh, Black Film Archive, uh, Black Film Center Archive, do you explore uh, TV dramas and series, uh, or is it just relegated to film? That is such a good question. Um, it's something that I've been thinking about. I, I think that there are some um, series in the collection, like I think The Wire might be in our collection, mm -hmm. something like that. But we've been pretty focused on the old school film and trying to um, broaden our reach within that world. So it might be films by independent directors. It might be films like, from around the world. Um, you know what I mean? So it's a diversity within that. But in my own thinking, and especially as, an, um, as a college professor, when students talk about representation, it's almost always through TV and what they're seeing there. And now more so gaming, which I know next to nothing about. Well, let me ask you, uh, I know that Diane Carroll mm -hmm. and Nicole, uh, I think it's Cole, oh, Nicole uh, from Star Trek, I forget her name, but who uh, from the oh. original. Um, but these were sheroes who were pioneers. Sure, yeah. I know that Diane Carroll... Uh, played in a role, uh, a very you know, respectable role as a nurse. Yeah. And Lloyd, um, I forget his last name, but he was the doctor that, that she uh, assisted. And there was some sort of uh, milestone moments in that. Mm -hmm. And then also on Star Trek, I think there was a similar moment when Kirk kissed her. Now, this coming Wednesday, um, there there's a, a wonderful moment that's going to take place on April 3rd. The There will be a screening of the film Losing Ground by Kathleen Collins, and this was uh, uh, filmed in 1982. And uh, Kathleen Collins preceded, uh, this will be preceded by a reading of selection from uh, Colleen, Kathleen Collins' daughter, Nina Lorez Collins, who we'll be talking to in the next uh, half hour. And she's uh, she will be reading notes from a black woman's diary, which was uh, published this year in 2019. That's right. Uh, with, we have about 90 seconds left, which is, I just sort of give us a little uh, run up to that next interview, which will be coming just very shortly. Well, this is something I'm very proud of and excited about. Uh, Losing Ground is one of the most important films in American film history by Kathleen Collins. It's always been close to my heart because the protagonist is a professor. Um, she's a black woman philosophy professor, and the film is basically about her her summer research project, which I think every, so many people in Bloomington right now are starting to think about their summer research and what a special time that is. And this just really takes that as a metaphor for her own, you know, internal kind of 
um, a journey that she goes on to think about her marriage and everything like that. So again, uh, it's pledge time at WFHB, and you just heard from Dr. Terry Francis, uh, the director of the Black Film Center Archive, and part one of a conversation that we had with her. Uh, she was elaborating on an upcoming event that she'll talk about more at length, along with the guest uh, speaker uh, who, will, who will be in town for the April 3rd event uh, that you um, that will, people will find very interesting. Now, she talked about the objectives of the Black Film Center Archive. And uh, one, they seek to expand the film collection of historic and current films by and about blacks, and they're thinking about expanding that out to uh, television dramas or television in particular. Uh, they encourage the continuation of creative film activity by independent black filmmakers. Uh, they undertake and encourage research in the history, meaning, and aesthetics of black film. And they guide and support students and researchers in black film studies. Now, the mission of WFHB, again, exists to provide an open forum for the exchange and discussion of ideas and issues and to celebrate and increase the local cultural diversity. Here at Bring It On, we have talked about a variety of topics, uh, some uh, that celebrate uh, the essence of being black in America, and some have drawn stark contrast to the way things really ought to be, but we've talked about some very difficult things here on Bringing On, and we will continue to do so as we progress in the future. Uh, this is where you come into play. Uh, WFHB as a station needs your support to keep the station uh, on the cutting edge and to help us bring relevant information to you, the listener. And I want you to roll up your sleeves at this time and pick up that phone and, as they say, truly smile and dial. And we have uh, individuals by the phone right now uh, that are ready to receive your call, receive your pledge. And we ask that you call during this time. And then, of course, you can give online safely and securely. Now, a number of supporters of Bringing On have been giving online. It's probably more convenient online these days, but, hey, we can accommodate you. Uh, www.wfhb.org. Give safely and securely and uh, support this station. Now, again, our day sponsor uh, is White Rabbit Printing. We want to thank them for all that they're doing to help this station. And, again, to Runcible Spoon for outstanding food. They're feeding our volunteers uh, this evening, and it, it smells great here in the station uh, here at 108 West 4th. Well, we have heard from Dr. Terry Francis uh, in sort of her uh, solo interview. Now she joins us as we talk with Nina Lorez Collins, daughter of the accomplished author and filmmaker Kathleen Collins. And uh, at this time, we'd like to let you hear that interview. All right, we thank you for uh, listening to Bring It On today, and we're in the second hour of our show. And um, we have been talking during the first half hour with Dr. Terry Francis, and we wanted to expand our conversation to bring on a guest who uh, we're excited to talk with. Her name is Miss Nina Collins, and Terry, why don't you introduce us to her and tell us a little bit about her. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Nina Collins is um, the daughter of Kathleen Collins, someone who I know as um, the restorer of Kathleen Collins' work in a couple different ways. Um, she restored um, uh, a Kathleen Collins' film, Losing Ground, and she also edited um, 
the uh, recent, well, two collections of um, of Kathleen Collins's writings. Um, the most recent is um, Notes from a Black Woman's Diary, and the first is um, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love, a collection of short stories. All right. And uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Francis, thanks for staying around after our State of the Black Films no, it's my in pleasure. America. And we had a very engaging, um, uh, somewhat insightful conversation. I hope our listeners enjoyed it. We're now going to bring on... Um, Nina Collins, uh, who's actually all the way out in Portland, Oregon. And so let's see if we can bring her in. Uh, Nina, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us. We're, we're so glad that you can afford some time, and uh, uh, we, we do welcome you to the Bring It On show. And as, as Dr. Uh, Francis just mentioned, we want to talk to you about an upcoming event uh, that's coming up this, uh, this Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Uh, uh, Francis, uh, why don't you one more time tell us what that's about? Well, it's um, it's kind of a multi- oops, it's a multidisciplinary event. Um, we are going to begin by just conversation um, with uh, Nina and also with my colleague Vic- Vivian Halloran about um, about Kathleen Collins as a writer, as a writer of prose, of letters, and the introspective writing she did in her diary. And then we'll follow that up with a screening of Losing Ground. So it's quite a fulsome event. And we'll also have um, uh, books for sale, both um, the collection of short stories, uh, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love, written by Kathleen Collins and uh, compiled by her daughter, Nina Collins. And then also um, Notes um, of a Black Woman's Diary will be for sale. And that's a collection of letters um, unpublished and um, un- unfinished uh, manuscripts, such as a novel. There'll be partial bits of that, as well as the diary. So it'll be a full evening of just conversation and screening. Nina, tell us about your mother. Uh, so she was um, she was born in 1942, and she was a black independent filmmaker and writer. When I was a kid, um, she um, had the most success, I guess, as a playwright uh, when I was young. Um, she made both films. Uh, she made The Cruise Brothers and Miss Malloy, which is a 50-minute um, adaptation of a short story by a guy named Henry Roth in 1980. And then she made Losing Ground, which was her first and only feature, which she wrote and directed and produced in 1982. Um, and then she died of bre- uh, breast cancer in 1988, so just a few years later. And um, the films were never released. She spent most of her professional life um, throughout my childhood as a professor teaching film production and theory at City University of New York. And, uh, and as I said, she kind of, she was a writer in many, as, as um, Terry alluded to, she, she wrote in many disciplines. So she wrote short stories. When she died, she had left, um, she left a big manuscript, an unfinished novel, around seven or 800 pages of an unfinished novel. She wrote a lot of plays, screenplays, um, and made two movies. So she was busy in her short life. She died at 46. And you've been inspired to uh, follow in her uh, footsteps? Um, you know, I went into book publishing when I graduated from Barnard College in 1990, and uh, so no, I didn't think I would follow in her footsteps. footsteps. Actually, I was a, a literary scout throughout my 20s, representing um, foreign publishers and L.A. film companies and finding projects for them to, to either translate or adapt to film, and I kind of avowedly didn't want to go into the film business. I felt like I'd seen her really struggle as a uh, as an artist, um, you know, kind of an independent artist, that it was we had a lot of, you know, financially. My childhood was was hard. She really um, 
you know, it wasn't it wasn't a particularly easy life, even though she was super passionate. So I think I initially went in the opposite direction of kind of wanting to be more kind of corporate. Um, and now, as I find now, I'm 49, and as I've gotten older, I have turned to writing. And then I um, I did in my late 30s started to get really interested in her work and um, went back and kind of read everything and started this process of trying to bring it out into the world. So, yeah, I, I, mean, I think as often happens, right, as we get older, we kind of become probably more like our parents. And, you know, um, but initially, I think I was rebelling against it. Well, let me ask you, um, did you have the type of relationship with your mother that you talked to her about her collaborations? Or was it uh, as you grew older, you, you, your interest was piqued in her work and then you did your own research? Or, or did she on occasion share with you some of the um, topics that she wanted to explore in her writing? She did very much kind of live her work, so I would say, while she wasn't really talking to me about it so much, we were surrounded by it growing up, I and mean, she was, I've said in a lot of you know, interviews and writing, she really was kind of working and writing, so um, so as a child, I was very much aware of her work, and I, I saw plays being workshopped, and I saw the movie, the movies were screened, and her actors and students were always coming in and out of our house, uh, and she... She was also a big journal writer and a big letter writer, so she wrote a lot of letters to me, particularly in my teenage years, that were not unlike her journal entries. Um, you know, I'd say they're probably, <laughs> I didn't grow up in a house with a lot of boundaries, probably. So, so yes, I was very much kind of affected and aware of her work growing up. Um, and then I'd say my awareness of it and interest in it has changed as I've gone through different stages of my own life and wanted to learn from her and... Um, I spent a lot of time reflecting on, you know, I think as a lot of women do with their mothers, how I'm the same and how we're different and how much I was impacted by her choices. So that changes over time. Well, tell me, um, how did you and Terry become acquainted? And Terry, chime in and tell us about how you both met. Well, it's I have to, it's such a great story, and honestly, I'm so excited to be coming to Bloomington because Terry is like really played a huge role in all this. But Terry, do you want to tell the story or should I? Um, I'll tell the, maybe I'll tell the first part. Okay. Um, the first part is that I was at a brunch and recognized the, a voice, but I couldn't quite place it. And, uh, I was, it was a, um, it was a like Upper West Side, you know, post holidays brunch, um, with some women who I didn't know. I was invited by someone I just met the night before, but I recognized this really distinctive voice. And it wasn't until I was driving back to New Haven that I realized that was Surrette Scott from Losing Ground. And I had been looking for Losing Ground. I first saw the film in graduate school, uh, yes, in graduate school when I was TAing um, an African-American cinema class. And, um, and of course, when I began teaching, I um, included this film in any class where I thought it might work. And, um, and even if it didn't seem to work, I just think it's a really wonderful and rare, um, rare film. Um, and we've been getting the 16 millimeter print to rent from some particular distributor. Um, I think it might have been My Fate of Films. And then suddenly it just wasn't available one year. And so I was without it for maybe two years and had been kind of asking around. And so just serendipitously, I ran into Surette Scott. So then I actually asked to be reintroduced to her, contacted the host of the, of the, of the brunch and met her. 
And I suppose after she vetted me and realized I was uh, okay to talk to, she gave me Nina's contact information and I reached out from there. I think that's how we connected. Okay, so Nina, you need to tell us the uh, the, the unedited uh, version. Uh, this, so you 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 were we were at a party or something, and someone was singing, and no, 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 tell us what's it was your a recollection? Yeah. What's funny about this memory is so completely weird. I actually don't remember any of that part of the story, Terry. So, oh, okay. the truth that comes is, out. No recollection of this. So my memory is vaguely. It was around ten years ago, and I. That must have, I think I got a phone call or an email from Terry, and she was asking if there was a better version of Losing Ground somewhere. And I, I recall that she kind of said whatever version she had that she sometimes liked to screen for students was really crappy. And so you know, was there a better version? And I said, no, I'm really sorry there isn't. And I said, actually, this company called Duart has been reaching out to me trying to get me to do something with the original film reels. And Terry, do you know, was the film shot in 16 millimeter or 32? Someone asked me yesterday, and I don't even know. It was 16, I believe. 16, okay. So, um, so Duar, the film lab in Manhattan, had been calling me and saying that they were going out of business, and they were like, we have these the original reels of film, and you need to pay us all this money in back storage, and you need to take these reels of film. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with them? Like, do you put them in your freezer? Like, I didn't know, like, how you'd store them, and... So I mentioned this to Terry, and she was like, oh, my God, you have to restore this film. And I was like, well, no one really cares about the film, and it's really expensive, and I don't know if I have it in me to undertake this. And so we, and then I wanted to meet her because at the time I was starting to work on a memoir about my mother and um, a book that I've still not finished. And I asked if I could meet her, and I drove up to New Haven, and we had lunch in her apartment there, and she was super lovely. And we basically just started the conversation, and she kind of said to me, if you don't restore Losing Ground, um, I will, or if you don't feel like you can, maybe I'll help you, I'll write some grants, maybe we can try and raise some money. She was very generous and, um, and enthusiastic. And then she said this one thing to me that really did stick with me. She said, when I've shown this film, when I've seen kind of young black women students watch this film, it, it, they cry like they've never seen images like this like images of themselves like this on film and it's really powerful and that was honestly one of the main motivating factors in the end when I decided that I was just going to spend the money and the time and um, restore the film and because I really thought I was just doing it mostly like I thought yes yeah, sure, sure Terry would like a copy but no one knew really I mean very few people knew who my mother was and knew about the film and so I didn't think there'd actually be an audience I thought I was mostly doing it kind of for my family um, for my children and because um, I ended up spending like $25,000 so it wasn't insignificant and uh, but anyway Terry was I, I, honestly if it wasn't for Terry I'm not sure it ever would have happened well, we've uh, again interrupted this wonderful interview uh, just to remind you that it's still not too late to pick up the phone and dial 812-323-1200 or give safely and securely online at www.wfhb.org. Um, and, and for those that have given online and given in advance, we thank you. And for those that are still giving online as we are talking at this very moment, we thank you. And for those who are going to help us uh, propel beyond the 30% raised uh, as of today after four days, um, we know that that number will definitely change. But a lot of that constitutes a large bulk donation that is being used as a match uh, for match for each donation made. So we want to um, just catapult things up, ratchet it up to maybe the 50% level, e even today. 
It's easy to do, and it's a good thing to do. It's tax-deductible, and the reasons for giving are numerous, namely to not only continue to hear the great quality programming that you're hearing now, but hearing throughout the day, throughout the week, but just knowing that you're doing your part to sustain and to help Community Radio uh, fulfill its mission, which, of course, is that uh, opportunity to provide an open forum for the exchange and discussion of ideas and issues. A lot of programming these days, it's already sort of pre-programmed, pre-packaged, and maybe debatable whether or not it's an open forum or not, but at this station, uh, the the um, the mission remains provide an open forum for the exchange and idea exchange and discussion of ideas and issues and to celebrate and increase the local cultural diversity well we're going to get back to that interview as it sort of winds down we do thank you for listening thus far still not too late to give and thank you in advance for what you'll do well tell us a little bit a little bit terry Tell us about the screening on this Wednesday. We're losing ground. We'll be screened. And, and tell us what the audience can anticipate. Hmm. Oh, is it my turn? Yes, <laughs> ma'am, it is. <laughs> Thank you, I'm Dr. A little Harris. Bit, no. <laughs> I'm a little bit She's um, overwhelmed right now. Overwhelmed. I'm just going back to that time. Um, well, what we can expect, I think, is Nina and I are just going to have, um, I think, what her mom might call a colored ladies conversation about um, the, the books and what we like. <laughs> I kind of imagine myself reading out parts aloud um, that I have enjoyed yeah. and been right, struck by. And of course, oh, you know, just kind of analysis and conversation with the audience. And um, once that kind of brings to a close, oh, and we'll be moderated um, or maybe ignited say, by um, Vivian Holleran, who um, is an, uh, kind of a wonderful colleague of mine. Um, who understands, I think, very um, deeply the, the kind of world that, um, that Sarah Rogers, that Dr. Sarah Rogers lived in, um, the, the lead character in Losing Ground. So I thought it would be really wonderful to have, um, you know, professors and literary folk kind of in this um, conversation about a work that is I mean, and this is, I refer both to the books and to the film, just kind of a rare exploration of, um, of, a, of a, um, a deeply thoughtful, professional, self-possessed woman who is pursuing um, something she wants to find out about. Do you know what I mean? It's really rare in a way to just meet a woman who has an idea or a quest that she's on and um, and of course on campus now we're all getting ready to think about our spring or rather our summer research projects which is a very special time and so are in a kind of position to understand the um, the setting of the film in the summertime um, but the so it'll just be conversation and then we'll screen the film and a bit more conversation after that and um, and that'll be an evening, I think, to remember. Well, if you've just tuned in to Bring It On, we're having a delightful conversation with Dr. Terry Francis, who is the director of the Black Film Center Archive at Indiana University. And, of course, joining us by phone is Nina Larez Collins, who's the daughter of the late Kathleen Collins, whose masterwork, Losing Ground, was just described by Nina and uh, by Dr. Uh, uh, Francis as it will be screened this coming Wednesday, April 3rd, 
from 6 to 9 p.m. And this will be at the IU Library's screening room in the Wells Library Room 048. And you don't want to miss it. Uh, tell us, Nina, um, one of the other works by your mother was covered by uh, Zadie Smith, and that was uh, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love. And uh, can you share with us that work and, and what jumps out at you from that, from that uh, work by your mother? Sure. Um, so after we um, restored Losing Ground and we had this kind of unexpected, great reception to it, I, um, I saw an opportunity. You know, when I, when I started reading my mother's work in, in my 30s, I discovered this collection of short stories. Like, I'd been familiar with her plays and her movies, but this was a, a, a manuscript that she'd written when I was super young, probably, you know, when, my, when I was around four or five years old in the early 70s, and I had never read it, and it was really like stuck in a drawer for 20 years, and then I carried it around for another 10 or 15 years and finally read it and thought it was really amazing, um, but at the time, before Losing Ground came out, I didn't think anyone would publish it, and then once Losing Ground was kind of successful and The New Yorker and other people um, were lauding her, I gathered uh, the stories and kind of put them in an order that I thought made sense and chose a title story and decided it would be called what would it, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love um, and sold it to Echo, which is a division of HarperCollins. And the stories are really wonderful. One of the things I, I, I often say is, I mean, most of my, my mother's work was entirely autobiographical. So pretty much every character is, you know, every main character is her and people in her lives and in her life. And, um, so whatever happened to interracial love is stories of her pretty much in her 20s, actually entirely in her 20s, um, and they're amazing. I mean, they're kind of they're kind of the character in in Losing Ground, the Sarah Rogers character earlier. The Sarah Rogers is kind of in Losing Ground. My mother is kind of a, a, a kind of a little bit of Sarah Rogers and a teeny bit of the mother character, but it's Sarah Rogers around age 30, and interracial love is kind of my mother younger. Um, and they're mostly about a woman kind of, uh, you know, more preoccupied with kind of her inner life, um, kind of an intellectual, arty, ambitious young woman who's preoccupied with love and sex and where she comes from. Um, I don't know. Is that about it? Is that about correct? Mm-hmm. Harry, what would you say? Yeah, I love what you just said about um, her being preoccupied with her inner life. Um, what struck me about the stories is that the setting is the early 1960s. And um, and I feel like that's not a period, although we hear about the civil rights movement as a setting and as a framework, the early 1960s seemed to me to be particularly, um, just a very particular period, a very sharp period of, um, of idealism, of violence, of um, of people trying on identities politically, and really experimenting with an entirely different kind of America than what we had been living before, and that that dynamic is being played out in intimate relationships, in friendships, roommates, lovers, and within within the individual self. Would you say that it also touched on issues that were a little taboo? You mentioned the 60s and interracial 
activity, uh, especially if, if people fell in love, um, in some states it was illegal for them to right. get married. Um, uh, would, would you also perhaps say, Nina, that this was sort of autobiographical of your mother's life? Oh, absolutely. So that, that title story tells the story. I, mean, I, I grew up hearing, my mother had a best friend named Kathy McQuarrie, who's white, who went to Sarah Lawrence, and my mother went to Skidmore, so kind of, you know, two Seven Sisters schools. They met, um, they, it's a, they met doing a presentation for Crossroads Africa, which was a pr- summer program that they both had gone on to, you know, do kind of a work opportunity program in Africa, and they um, so these two women, one white, one black, were asked by Crossroads Africa to do a presentation at West Point about the program. This was in 1962, and they met and they became best friends. And when they both graduated from college a year later, they rented an apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan on West End Avenue. And my mother was very involved in SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And um, But the story she always told to me about that period was not really about politics. It was about renting this apartment with Kathy on the Upper West Side. And she took the rear bedroom in the back, which was very dark, and it's where she started writing short stories, and she was very depressed. <laughs> that was kind of what I knew growing up about that period of her life. But when you read the story, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love, you get more of the kind of the whole milieu. They were... Um, you know, they were kind of people from the movement coming in and out. I mean, there was a whole, there was, you know, Kathy had a black boyfriend who was a poet. Um, I later learned, you know, people, I mean, Martin Luther King visited them at that apartment. Um, and also my mother was really in love with a guy named Ralph Allen, who was a white SNCC leader. Um, well, if you've enjoyed what you've heard thus far, then you can come back out on April 3rd and hear more. And, um, promises to be an engaging, wonderful program. Our thanks to Michael, who called to say reg- he's regularly imp- impressed by bringing on and also made his pledge donation. Our show is uh, executive executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our board engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam, with additional background tracks by David Baker. Thanks for your donations to WFHB and to Bring It On. Tune in next week on Monday, April 8th at 6 p.m. for another exciting Bring It On broadcast right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.